in a manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode 26, March 2020. Spanishes, a conversation with Micah Espinosa. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. One of my favorite jobs is helping promising new voice talents break into the competitive world of voiceover. I develop and rehearse what we call their demo reels. These demos showcase their talent with commercials, audiobooks, narration, animated feature film voicing, movie trailers, any of the hundreds of ways in which talented voice actors contribute. I'm particularly proud of Dennis Howell. He's my latest client in voiceover. Here's 10 seconds from his brand new commercial demo reel. We've always believed there's a right way to make something. It takes craft and dedication and working till it's your best. That's our standard. And we build motorcycles for people who share it. Indian. As you heard, Dennis has the voice and the acting skills to be a very successful voiceover actor. If you'd like to learn how to work with me yourself in this way, just go to paulmeyer.com slash voice hyphen over. Now it's time for Guess That Accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I am graduate uh, university and work uh, in um, in some factory like engineer 20 years. And in 58, I come to United States and start studying English. So what do you think? If you guessed Russia, congratulations. It was Ideas Russia 13, submitted back in 2015 by Professor Lene Lefelt. She's an associate professor at Oakland University in Michigan. Her subject was born and raised in St. Petersburg, moving to the U.S. just a few years before Professor Lefelt made this recording. If you'd like to hear the whole recording, just search for Russia 13 at dialectsarchive.com. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? I lived with my family in the country until I was in the fourth grade. The house, we had no electricity. We had no bathroom. We had an outhouse. Get the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. My guest this month is Micah Espinosa, professor in the School of Film, Dance and Theatre at Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona. She's also Ideas Associate Editor for Arizona. For more information about Micah, please see the In a Manner of Speaking webpage devoted to this podcast at paulmeyer.com. So, Micah, it's beautiful to be speaking to you after all these years. We haven't spoken in, in many years since, I think, a conference a good few years ago, but we have uh, stayed in touch. Of course, you've been one of my most faithful instructors using my accents and dialects for stage and screen as a, as a textbook there at Arizona State. And, and of course, you've been a faithful editor of ideas. So we've been, as is the way these days, we have continued to have a relationship, but we just haven't spoken face to face in a long, long time. It's true. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive in. Today is all about Espanol. 
Spanish, Spanishes, Hispanic, Latina, Latino, Latinx, Chicano, Chicana. So we're going to be moving in that, that lexical constellation that includes all those terms. Unpack a few of those for us. Hispanic, Latina, Latino, they can get very confusing, but Hispanic refers to people who speak Spanish. They're descended from a Spanish-speaking population, and they have a sense of community through Spain. While Latino and Latina refer to people who are descended from Latin America, they have a history of colonization. It's a shortened Spanish phrase, Latino-Americano, Latin American, and that's where you get Latino. And all of them share culture through the Spanish language. It's a little confusing because today in the United States, those terms are thought of as racial categories used to describe race the same way we describe white and black and Asian. But Latinos can be white and black and indigenous American and mestizo and mixed and and even of Asian descent. So that's a beginning to sort of separate those two talking points, Hispanic and Latina and Latino. And then (laughs) we have Latinx. And that's a completely different term that I think we will return to. And I call myself a Chicana. And a Chicana is a term that specifically refers to people who are Mexican-American. And it's a chosen identity. When you say you are a Chicana, it's because you align with the indigenous consciousness. You have, you are proud of your cultural expression. You defend immigrants, the rights of women. You have a general sense of border consciousness. And so then you become a Chicana, not just a Latina. That's going to be very, very helpful. I'm learning some stuff. First of all, Latinx, is that the best pronunciation? Latinx or Latinx? Does it matter? I think it's fine either way. Uh, but most people just say Latinx. And I'm very, very conscious that you and I are both very privileged in that we speak two of the dominant languages of this planet. You know, my my ancestry is from Britain. It's, it's English. And I have these these terribly mixed feelings about English, which was exported through colonization and imperialism across the globe until it's now the almost the uh, the default language of the globe. But um, Spanish, no less, has been extremely successful in in spreading around the globe. So how do we feel? Do we have mixed feelings of of pride and shame over what Spanish and English have? have achieved on the planet or should we just say well that's the way of the world that's the way that's the way it works power shifts cultures gobble up other cultures and dominate them with their language how how do you feel about spanish and english and uh, their history well latinidad is an identity born out of the violence of indigenous dispossession and that was exercised by spanish i try to keep it in my awareness and how i navigate the world, but it can also be a a source of great pride. Do you feel a similar sense of pride over your English heritage? I mean, obviously you're speaking English as one of your two first languages, I assume, right? Yes, yes. But I think that will get us to our discussion about English-only movements. The bicultural, bilingual identity is one that is not really part of our U.S history. And so it is really something in saying I'm a Chicana, it is something that I reclaim and reaffirm my bilingualism, my Spanglish. And is that at the expense of your 
English-speaking heritage, or do you feel bicultural or, or just single cultural? What's what's the dominant culture in your identity, the Chicana? Oh, they're both. They're both. Yes, it, it, I am bicultural and bilingual, and neither one of them, I think, with any kind of preciousness. <laughs> I think we have to really embrace the, the messiness of what is Spanglish. I mean, growing up, I might have said something like, Pues vamos a la tienda to get some eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so just a, a minute or so on your own personal history, where, where you grew up, what your parents were doing, where, where you lived. Uh, what's, your, what's your own cultural narrative? I was born in El Paso. My parents were living in Mexico at the time. And then I was raised in the Dominican Republic. So I always joke that I grew up on tostones, and tortillas, which are two of the staple foods of those two cultures. I spent the rest of my childhood in Arizona, in Tucson, Arizona. At that time, the border was much more open, and most of my family is from Nogales, Arizona, and Nogales, Mexico. That's great. That's, that helps us. Uh, that gives us a little snapshot of the Espinosas. <laughs> yeah, and my, my mother, her family's been in the United States since the Mayflower, and English and from Missouri and part of that whole grapes of wrath and moving west to Arizona. So I am a Mexican-American and my family's been in the Sonoran region, in the Sonoran desert, for over four generations. Rich heritage. Yeah. Jumping around to topics we thought we might speak about. It's it occurred to me that Spanish pronunciation, unlike English, can easily be inferred from its spelling. Unlike English, uh, you know, impossible to teach English pronunciation because there are exceptions to exceptions to exceptions. And I just wondered if you had any theory as to why the two languages, which are both long established in the world, are, are so different in this regard. Spanish was developed from what they call vulgar Latin and um, it had a lexical set that was influenced by Arabic, but it didn't take on a lot of the Arabic sounds. So um, it absorbed words from Romance languages like French and Catalan and Italian and Portuguese. But in 1713, the Royal Spanish Academy, the Real Academia Española, they standardized the language and that has really helped Spanish learners over the years standardize the use of accents to denote syllabic stress and follow pronunciation rules. While English is German, French, Latin, Greek, and we borrow from the original languages. We have 26 letters, but 44 different speech sounds. So that you can only find spelling bees in English, but not so much in Spanish. It can be very boring. So English and Spanish have collided in the new world, I suppose, alongside a few other languages like uh, like uh, Portuguese in, in Brazil and so forth. But what do you make of this collision, this friction between those of us who claim English heritage and those who claim Spanish heritage? You know, we'll, we'll, what do you think is going to happen in the, in the century mm. ahead of us as mm. English and Spanish seem to be jockeying for, for dominance? Well, that's a, that's a big question. That's a big political debate. And at this point, I would say that the laws are in favor of English, but time is not. We're a young culture, and in 2060, the United States will be the second Spanish, largest Spanish-speaking country in the world after Mexico. 
So one in three Americans will be Hispanic. So I don't know what's going to happen over time, but I think that right now the laws are favoring English. If we look at the history of monolingualism in the United States, it, it really, from our inception, has been a country that was founded on English being the only acceptable language. And even though we are a nation of immigrants and we've always been multilingual, we had Theodore Roosevelt saying in 1950, he said it would be not be merely a misfortune, but a crime to perpetuate differences of language in this country. There is no room in this country for hyphenated Americanism. The foreign-born talk the language of its native-born fellow citizens. We have room but for one language here, and that is the English language, for we intend to see that the crucible turns our people out as Americans of American nationality and not as dwellers in a polyglot boarding house. 1915, only about 100 years ago. Uh, my wife's a, a native Kentuckian. Her father was a native Missourian. Um, but, you know, obviously, like everybody in this country, they're descended from the old world, even those we call indigenous peoples, if you go back far enough. And she would ask him, Daddy, um, you know, where are we from? Where's, what's, where, where are you, where's our family from? He said, we're, we're American. We're American. He, he just closed the conversation down. Uh, so there was a determined denial of anything other than American. And, and that for him, of course, meant English-speaking American. Things have changed. We are far more embracing of, of pluralism than we were, but haven't gone far enough, I would probably hear you say. Right. I mean, we can, I hope that we do talk about some of the, the rhetoric, the anti-immigrant rhetoric that, that affects Spanish speakers in the United States today. But we have to remember that Spanish is the heritage language of much of the United States that the Mexican government controlled much of the Southwest, then eventually language became the official language. But in my neighborhood, certainly Spanish is still spoken by a large majority of the population, but it's not taught in schools. So when you get to be president, when you're the queen of North America, <laughs> how will you change the law? How will you change policy, linguistic policy? Well, I think what I'd want to do is really embrace bilingualism. Language has to be in uh, understood in terms of bilingualism and, and bicultural um, identities. And I think that anybody who understands language acquisition and the learning of other languages understands that good policy is policy that includes the native language, the language that's taught in the home or spoken in the home. I, I would embrace that bilingual vision rather than a monolingual vision. In 2000, Arizona had Proposition 203, which banned bilingual education. So possibly from your point of view, where you live in the med Midwest, there might be other more embracing attitudes. But certainly on the border where I live, there are not embracing attitudes. In fact, teachers with accents can be fired for having heavy accents. I did not know that. Yeah. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, home of the Haskell Indian Nations University. The school has its origins in a rather shameful episode of, of our history. When the children of Native Americans were brought to Haskell, 
made to dress white, speak white, deprived of their right to speak their own language. That's a very shameful history, and it's very different now. We're very embracing of all of the Indian nations who sent us students to study in Haskell. But, you know, that was then and this is now. There are a generation of actors like myself who, who grew up under these laws that now have to reclaim their language and they have to heal from, from these demoralizing and counterproductive attitudes around language learning. And and all of these laws, uh, most of them in most of the states of the United States have been repealed, but not Arizona's. They, they remain intact. Interesting. You describe yourself variously. Activist is one term you claim for yourself. What does that mean for you? That I take a stand on an issue and then I create art around that and I try to understand it in terms of my teaching and my writing so that I can empower people and I can be empowered myself. Get specific. Talk about a project. An activist project. Well, I'm a performance artist and I love to do lamentation. And I recently did a project called Where the Border Wall Ends where I did mass lamentation with dancers down where they are building the wall, and we cried. We allowed ourselves to feel the pain and allow others to hear us, because part of my activism, my point of view, is that sound cuts through the illusion that we are separate. And so my idea and my artivism is that Maybe the politicians will hear the crying mothers or they'll hear the, the, the injustice of the crying, and that will make people rise to action. We're both voice and speech specialists, and we have a very special reverence for the power of the human voice to dispel those differences, of course. Exactly, exactly. And then I work on a lot of plays that are bilingual plays, and I also have a couple of books. Uh, monologues for Latino actors and scene books, which I co-edited with Cynthia DeCure, scene book for Latinx actors. I found out in my research that if you were a Anglo actor and you were going to find a monologue that you could go and there were all these resources. And what I found was that those resources just did not exist for the Latino and Latina actor and that I needed to create them. So that's another form of my activism. Did I hear you use the term artivist? I did use that term. I love it. <laughs> a, a blending of artist and activist, right? Right, and that's sort of where the irreverence with language and, and embracing Spanglish, embracing a mishmash of, of language comes from, and I, I, I try to do that whenever I can. <laughs> so, I mean... The act of making art can never fail to be political on some level, can it? No, I, I don't think it can. You know, when I am teaching these multiple Spanish accents, I have to really approach it as a linguistic anthropologist. I have to really take into account the cultural, the social, the political aspects surrounding the dialect. Latinidad is so broad there's so many ways that one relates to language from so many different points of view. So Latinx dialects, you're, you're really looking at first language acquisition. 
How long has the subject been speaking English? What is their facility with the language? What is their education? Are they naturally code switchers? Have they grown up in a media-rich environment? In what culture have they been socialized? Are they native Spanish speakers who speak English? Are they native English speakers who speak Spanish? And what language do they dream in? So those are, those are the questions that I begin with when I begin to look at how do I approach this dialect? I think if we polled the, the general movie-going audience about dialect coaching, they'd, they'd kind of think simplistically about it that, well, it's just something you sort of paste on the surface of the performance similar to, to makeup. It's, it really doesn't affect the narrative, the storytelling, the politics of the story, but yet, of course, it absolutely does, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, people who originate from Mexico or the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico, they have very different cultural backgrounds and accepting language and possibly religion, very different points of view. And that affects so many things. Of course, the, the vowel and consonant substitutions might be similar because they're all coming from Spanish, but then from there to find how the culture resonates in the mouth, that's quite different. And I start with, with love. <laughs> that sounds very silly, but a love for the culture and a love for the sounds. Yes, if we don't approach a project with love for those characters, if we don't embrace them as loving them as ourselves, loving our neighbor as us, if we don't approach it that way, then, then we're being dismissive in some sense. Right, and I think that there's a, a burden of authenticity that comes with, with taking on these accents and dialects that's a little different. I mean, uh, people feel quite comfortable taking on a British accent because it's, it's in our ear. We hear it all the time. But when you take on the sounds of someone who's historically ignored or marginalized or they're being vilified in society, uh, there's a burden of authenticity to create a respectful representation uh, right now, there's so much anti-immigration and xenophobia and racism. Uh, the national rhetoric infiltrates the artistic practice, and, and you can't ignore it. You have to acknowledge, oh, that's there, and then move from move on into your artistry from that very real place. When you speak of the burden of authenticity, it, it really does become a, a heavy burden, and one can almost understand, I can, I can, I can argue on both sides of the of the issue. I mean, I've met people who argue that only deaf people should play deaf people, only Hispanic people should play Hispanic characters, that that the actor should have innate authenticity before being permitted to play a role. And yet then I say, well, yeah, but on the other hand, we all play, we can all play a dog, we can all play a cow or the man in the moon. And uh, we can all, all play the opposite gender. And so there's that playfulness that counteracts that burden of authenticity. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it, in our performing arts ethos at the moment that we, we argue for authenticity and, and, and yet we also want to embrace the ability to, to morph into almost any identity as an actor. We resist being pigeonholed into only a few kinds of roles that we can play. We want to play everything. Actors want to play everything, and they should. But then on the other hand, mm -hmm, what you've said about the burden of authenticity. The umbrella of Latinidad or Hispanic is, is a wonderful thing in the sense that um, it gives, it was created in, in a way to, to have more political power, but also it, there's the danger 
of just thinking that as a Mexicana, I would understand the Puerto Rican culture. I think as long as the understanding of the culture is really explored, the sounds and the identity is really explored, because I know as much about Puerto Rican culture as maybe I might know about Irish culture as a Mexicana. So to assume that as a Latina, that I have this great understanding of all Latino and Hispanic cultures is uh, that that's where the danger lies. Very well put. Yeah. I mentioned um, identity and the intersectionality of identity is what is also really interesting about being a Latino and a Latina. And now this new term Latinx which is interesting to explore. Okay, so unpack intersectionality of identity. That sounds like a pretty fancy academic term, but unpack that in practical terms for people. Sure. So that's where you look at someone's race. Someone could be Latino, but they consider themselves an Afro-Latino. Their class, their gender, their sexuality, their nationality. There's lots to, to look at there. It's not that... Latinos are just one thing. So it's how you intersect with all intersect with all those things. I have a little intro that I wrote about my own intersectionality that I'll share with you. Mm-hmm. Um, my tongue gives me away. Ni de aquí o de allá. My loyalties to my global community, my one earth mama and papa and the freaks of this world. A radical feminist who takes after her machismo father, pulled by the weight of her societal obligations and debt. His posture and gait has been affected by chasing impossible forms of beauty, riding in an ivory tower, an intense lower abdominal squeezing caused by the pain she feels when she sees images of intolerance and hate. So that's my intersectional identity. It's, it's, it's tied with my politics, my physical body, my sense of border consciousness, living in two lands, my liminality, my, my place, all the, all the in-between places. Liminality? Did I hear you say that? <laughs> yes. Meaning? Oh, oh I, I, I use too many big words, right? <laughs> Does it come from liminal? Yeah. L-I-M-I-N-A-L? Yes. I don't know what that means. Well, it is um, it is the ambiguity, the disorientation in sort of the, the middle state. Different fields use liminality in, in different ways. But I think when it, you're talking about identity, you're talking about that in-between place. You're neither here from here or from there, you're in this very new place. Gloria Anzaldúa is a very famous writer, and she writes very much about linguistic oppression. She used that term. That's where I learned it from her, was uh, liminality, a border, a border consciousness. I love it. I'm going to start using that word. <laughs> Me too. A condition in between. That's the best way to put it. You know, we, it's getting very deep here. And that's, I, may, I don't think we should apologize to our listeners for getting deep because I think that's important sometimes. It, it argues, what we're talking about now, Micah, is that all of us are ambiguous. We are all 
many, many things. We are all occupying an, a border territory, a liminality, an intersectionality. Uh, you, you can't move through the world without becoming a unique human being, a product of all your experience and your relationships and your encounters. So these artificial walls that we build between cultures are simply political conveniences, aren't they? Yes, they are. And this could, as we begin to think about this, we take a deep dive into what identity is and language. We can maybe create some best practices as we go back to Spanish accents and dialects and Latina, Latinx identity. We have to think about the history. I mean, I keep going back to the history and what, I mean, let's look at Latinx. What does Latinx mean? Latinx is a new invention and some people are identifying with it and some people aren't around queer, trans, feminist, sort of the Latinx subcultures. And um, there's this wonderful scholar named Alan Lopez who says that the X stands for, for the wound. All of us have in some way a wound, but what's happening to Latino actors when they enter the Eurocentristic environment of theater. And what I've learned is that when they try to take on these sounds, there is a process of acceptance of self. And I've, I've experienced it. I've seen the debilitating effects that shame memory has in the body. And that's because, well, I can only speak for myself. I remember being put in the corner and being told not to speak that language at school. So then when I had to suddenly make a living speaking Spanish, it was really hard for me. Yeah, all, the, all those feelings of shame came back, right? Exactly. And even as I approach coaching, when a play has a lot of Spanish in it, I'm very clear about my level of Spanish and how far I can go and what I can do. So some people speak better Spanish than others. And some people can speak Spanish but not read it or write it. Some studied in school, but they never performed speaking in Spanish. That's a whole other thing. Some people, some um, actors can speak Spanish and English, but within the context of where they come from, with the local rhythms and pronunciations of their culture. And some actors have a very strong phenotype that people just assume because of the way they look that they should speak Spanish, and they don't. So there's a lot of fear of judgment from the experts in the room and the audience and from those who speak Spanish with greater fluidity and, and better grammar and pronunciation. Uh, the body really freezes to this response and learning the dialect or the accent or the Spanish, the language, let's say there's Spanish in the play. Sometimes it takes a little longer to get through that and you have to approach it with kindness and understanding for that memory in the body. And you'd be the last person to claim that as an experience peculiar to Hispanics. I mean, even I had a tr tremendous shame over my country accent when I, you know, when I came to London, I had, I had to get rid of my, my country accent. And then I had to get rid of a, a, a working class accent. So, I mean, it's not as if that's that experience of, identity reclamation and the ridding one of shame is peculiar to to any culture it must it must exist pan globally don't you think i i think it does i'm going to take it to my own experience of working on the canon of what i call the new american theater which is these wonderful 
Latino and Latina playwrights and how they're being produced in all the wonderful regional theaters of this country. I am looking specifically at what happens to these actors when they come in and, and they're held under this giant umbrella of Latinidad and they're in this time where the rhetoric, the national rhetoric is very anti-immigrant and they are three or four generations removed and they don't speak Spanish. It might feel shameful to try those sounds on. So as a coach, I really have to have a willingness to deeply listen and understand where they come from and what's the cost in the transformation. And that's true. It would be with any dialect. What is the cost? But we don't hear like the, I think that the difference is that if I want to take on a British accent, I have some idea of where to go. I hear it all the time, but I don't hear Mexican American sounds. I don't hear maybe a stereotype. So we have the very sexy female Sofia Vargas or, Penelope Cruz, Salma Hayek, uh, you have comedians like George Lopez. But if I were to think, okay, I have to play a Mexican father, uh, a politician with dignity, I, I, I wouldn't be able to go, oh, there's somebody I can turn to. That's a sound that is in the national consciousness. And that's precisely why you and I have been so dedicated to the International Dialects of English Archive low these many years. So that yes. there is a place to go to hear authentic samples, people not only reading a standard passage, but speaking autobiographically about their experience, their life experience. So we do have real-life models across the spectrum, not just one or two, but, you know, eventually hundreds of different Mexicans, hundreds of different Dominicans, hundreds of different people from Spain. Yes, thank you. It's, it's been an incredible resource for me and my students and the actors that I work with. I'm really proud to be a part of it. Thank you, Micah. You know, uh, we've only scratched the surface of all the topics we had lined up to talk about. I think this is going to call for a part two, maybe even a part three. Are you up for that? <laughs> <laughs> sure, I'd love to talk to you again. Well, I think we just need to say how great this is to have connected at this very deep level about these very important topics. And thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks to you for joining Micah Espinosa and me, Paul Meyer. Please follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. If you want to learn Spanish accents for the theatre, contact Micah or take a look at my own book, A Spanish Accent, available on my website and from Amazon in various formats. It's also part of my Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen. Join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking.